It's so good to be able to meet physically again after uh, four weeks of uh, staying home. And it's wonderful that through technology, uh, we can meet digitally. Isn't that right? But, so good morning to those of you who are watching us online uh, this morning. But I can tell you this, nothing beats the joy of worshipping, right, next to the one another and hearing one another sing and lifting our hands and enjoying the presence uh, of the Lord. And, and that is wonderful. And then after this, it's followed up by a nice cup of Holy Grounds coffee. So nothing beats that. Uh, it's almost like looking at the photographs of your children, your grandchildren when you're traveling versus arriving home and giving them a hug. And that's the difference. And I think it's wonderful to be able to come back uh, in physically to worship the Lord. So welcome home to FCC. And for those of you who have been joining us on this series on the covenants, I hope that you have been enjoying that. And uh, welcome back to the covenant series uh, as well. Now, thus far, just as a backdrop and an introduction, thus far we have looked at four biblical covenants all right, the Adamic covenant, and let me just quickly run you through those that we have already covered and bring it up to speed. And today we're going to be dealing with one that is hardly talked about, which is the Davidic covenant, and we need to talk about that. So here's what I'd like you to do, okay? Put on your thinking cap, okay? Put on your, your, your get ready to really study the Word of God. Now, the Adamic covenant is where we started. It's a covenant that sealed the consequences of the fall of man. And it gave us the prophetic promise of a coming Messiah, that there is a coming Messiah and he will, the, the devil will bruise his heel, but he will crush Satan's head. That's the promise that comes with the Adamic covenant. Then we look at the Noahic covenant, which is a covenant that God made with creation through Noah. To, present its, uh, to, to preserve its present order so that the work of redemption can be complete. And then came the Abrahamic covenant, which is uh, a co where God promised Abraham a land, promised Abraham a nation and a blessing. And through Abraham, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And every one of us here, we are recipients of that blessing. Then we look at the Mosaic covenant last week which brought in the Torah or the law, which make Israel a nation and a people under God. But every one of us know by now that that is a temporary covenant that was established to put a restraint on the sinfulness of man. The laws were put there to hold people back and to help people understand that they are lawbreakers until Jesus came. But we have... And that is the new covenant, which we will look at next week. But we've got one more covenant to go before we can get to the climax, which is the new covenant. And that is the Davidic covenant that we will study this morning. This is a covenant that God made with King David. And it has to do with succession. Okay, King David, God made that covenant with him. Now, how did this covenant come about? Let me give you the backdrop to it. Okay, but before we do that, let's bow, we have a word of prayer, and then I'm going to take you right in to the Davidic covenant. Very exciting, interesting covenant. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your presence in our midst. Even as we worship you, we know that your manifest presence is here. Even in the worship you minister to us, 
Now I pray that the unfolding of your word will bring light to our life. God, you help us to fall in love all over again with this covenant-keeping God that we serve. A God who had been, who put together a redemption plan all the way from the Garden of Eden until we meet you face to face. And so, Lord Jesus, come, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everybody say, Amen. How did the Davidic covenant come about? After Moses died, the mantle of leadership was passed on to Joshua. We all know that, right? Under the leadership of Joshua, Israel began to take possession of the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham. Then in Joshua chapter 24, verse 31, in the New King James translation, it reads like this, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, that's the first generation, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which, uh, works of the Lord which he has done for Israel. Okay, so we, we know that uh, after, Josh, after Moses passed on and Joshua came on, what happened was the first generation, the people who served under Joshua, they actually know the Lord, they serve the Lord. And then all the, the next generation came along, the elders, they outlived Joshua, they all know about the works that the Lord has done for them. But here's the problem. After Joshua passed on, the nation slipped into spiritual dry land. Okay, and in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us this. When all that generation, which includes Joshua and the elders that outlived him, were gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them, which, who do not know or did not know the Lord, nor the work which he has done for Israel. Do you notice what he's saying here? That after Joshua and the elders passed on, the next generation that came up, they did not know God. And they didn't even know about the works of God. So I'll put it this way. The first generation knows God. The, gener the second generation knows about God. The third generation don't even know God. All the works that he has done for them. The first generation lives by the Bible. The second generation owns a lot of Bible. The third generation simply ignore the Bible. Are you with me? You know, the first generation serves in the church. The second generation attends church. The third generation, just avoid the church. Entirely possible, right? The first generation, the, their mantra is God and me, God and me. Second generation is me and God, me and God. Third generation is just me. See, and it begins to deteriorate. And, and that was what happened to the nation of Israel. They went into idolatry after that, and as a result, they came under judgment. Then in Judges chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord tells us this, In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. And then during those seasons, what did God do? God began to raise judges to rescue them from their enemies. Whenever they come under attack, if they repent, God will raise a judge and then rescue them. But it was really an up and down season. See, whenever they fall into defeat, they will repent. They come back, come crying back to God. God raised the judge. But once the judge dies, they go back to their sinful ways. I think the last verse in the book of Judges really describes it best. Judges 21, verse 25 says this. In those days, Israel had no king. 
and everyone did as they saw fit. Actually, they do have a king. Who is their king? God is their king. But then what? This went on until the last judge, who was Samuel. Samuel came along. And it was during the rule of Samuel when the people of God asked God for a human king. See, they did not, they were not content to have a God as their king, but they wanted a human king, just like the rest of the, the nations, complete with palm, pageantry, and procession, and all that, things that they could see. They were not content to have an invisible God as their king. So what did God do? God gave them King Saul. So King Saul became the first king of Israel. And we all know, right? He started well, but he did not end well. Pride and disobedience brought about his downfall. And that was when God stepped in and then God raised a king after his own heart. Who was that? King David. And that's when King David came along. And it was through the line of David that God will bring about the promised Messiah. And this is what the Davidic covenant is all about. Are you with me, people? You're getting the backdrop now? now and it's so important. Now, all this was recorded for us now. How was that covenant made? It was recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7 from verse 1 to verse 16. So you got to keep your finger on that passage because it's critical, okay? So let me start reading for you and then let me unpack those verses for you. And I tell you, at the end, you will see the beauty of this and then we're going to go into a time where we can pray and trust God to come and do breakthroughs in our life, okay? So here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 onwards. After the king, referring to King David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord has given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God, in other words, the, where the, the, the presence of God, remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Whenever I have moved from place to place with a tent as my dwelling, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, under the reign of King David, Israel became one united nation. Okay, the north and the southern kingdom all came together. He made Jerusalem the capital and he brought the Ark of the Covenant which carries the presence of God he into Jerusalem, pitched a tent for it. We call it David's tabernacle. And there he hosted the manifested presence of God. And the nation then entered into a golden era where there was peace in the land. Now, one day, David was sitting in his palace you know, he's got a beautiful palace made of uh, cedar. And then he was looking over his domain. And then he reflected to himself, you know, here I am in this beautiful palace, but there my God is staying in a tent. How can this be? So what did he do? He summoned for the prophet Nathan. And then he said to the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, here I am 
living in the house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. How can that be? And then Nathan immediately got excited. So he said in, in verse 3, whatever you have in mind, O king, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But I tell you, that night, the Lord appeared to Nathan and actually told him, you spoke too soon. What David wanted to do is a good idea, but it is not God's idea. What David wanted to do is good, but what God wanted to do is even better. What is God wanting to do? I'll tell you what he wanted to do. God is about to make a covenant with David that will set the stage, brothers and sisters, for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This is the Davidic covenant that we are studying this morning. And let me tell you how it's going to happen. It is recorded now in verse 8 to verse 16. So let me read that for you. Now then, here's what God wants to do. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give them rest from all their enemies. Okay, all this sounds very familiar, right? And then the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish the kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by man, floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Hallelujah. The covenantal promises contained in this Davidic covenant is one which has a double fulfillment. Listen carefully to me, okay? It has a double fulfillment because it is talking about two things at the same time. Verse 8 to verse 16 that we just read Part of it is already fulfilled in the immediate future. It will be fulfilled in the immediate future through David's offspring, David's son. Who is that? Solomon. That's right. It was fulfilled through, son, uh, through his son Solomon. But parts of it is fulfilled in the prophetic future through God's promised son. Who is who? Jesus Christ. You see? So let me... Make that clear for you. There are three key elements in these verses that we just read which make up the, the Davidic covenant. Here are three key elements. The first is the present reality. Okay, what is in the present? Listen now to verse 8 to 11. Let me read it for you just to help you to see it clearly. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. So he's talking about the present reality. Okay? I took you from the pasture, tending the flock, appointed you ruler over my people Israel. 
I've been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Now all this is spoken to David. It's about David. Okay, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, plant them so that they have a home of their own and will no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and has done ever since the time. I appointed leaders over my people Israel and I will give you rest over all your enemies. The Lord began by reminding David of how he was taken from the sheep pen to become king over Israel. From shepherding sheep, he's now become uh, a shepherd of God's people. Is that right? And how do we know that? Psalm 78, verse 72. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands, he led them. Why was David able to do all that? It's because God was with him. See, God took him out and God made him do all this. And then you notice that God specifically told David that he will make David's name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Then he told him, God will provide a place for Israel, plant them safely in the land of their own home. He will give them rest from all their enemies, which is a blessing, right? Now, tell me, what does all this remind you of? What does all this remind you of? He's going to give them a land. He's going to bless them. He's going to make his name great. What is all that? It's the Abrahamic covenant. Hello? It's actually the Abrahamic covenant. It's a land, a nation, and a blessing. So what is God saying to David here? He's telling him, David, the blessings of Abraham is coming upon you. Everything I promised Abraham is coming upon you. Everything that God said to Abraham is partially fulfilled here now in King David's reign. The people of Israel are already in the promised land. The descendants of Abraham are in a good place, right? And they are blessed with a time of peace and prosperity. All this has happened. And they are experiencing the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. But what's coming next? I think there is more. And that's where we move into part two. The first part, just, just the present reality. The second part is the immediate future. Okay, what is going to happen in the immediate future? It's found in verse 11 to 13. Let me read this for you. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'm going to raise up an offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood. Who's that referring to? Solomon. Right? And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. David wanted to build a house for God, but instead God said to him, I will build a house for you. Not you build a house for me. I will build a house for you. Okay, question. Why did God not want King David to build him a house. I'll tell you why. Because he was a man of war. God wanted a man of peace to actually build his house. And though David would not build the house for God, which we all know he did not, his descendant will. Okay? Solomon will. But I think a typical father that David was, he said to himself, well, God did say that I cannot build the house. But God didn't say that I cannot buy the land, 
raise the funds, design the temple that I like, and then get the workers I wanted. And, then, and that's what David did. He did all of that. He bought the land, he raised the workers, designed the temple, and then he charged his son, Solomon, to build it. How do I know this? It's all in Second Chronicles 22, verse 7 to verse 10. Are you following me so far? Okay, I've got to give you all this backdrop and then you see the beauty of this whole thing, how it all comes together, you know. Second Chronicles 22, verse 7 to 10. David said to Solomon, that was before he died, he said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, and his name will be Solomon. And, and it's true, in Solomon's reign, he fought very few wars. That's why he got so much time. He actually wrote Ecclesiastes, you know, he got so much time to think about life. <laughs> so he wrote all that, all right? And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. And he's the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, I'll be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So let me ask you, did Solomon end up building God a house? He absolutely did. In fact, when the temple he built was finished, and dedicated in 1 Kings chapter 8, the presence of the Lord was so thick, it came down during the dedication in 1 Kings 8, verse 10 and 11. The priest withdrew from the holy place. The cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The presence of God came down and the priests could not perform their service anymore because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. It was so awesome, the house that, Solomon built for the Lord. But I tell you this, there was something more. There was something more significant than just that physical building. When God said to David, I will establish a house for you, he was not just talking about a building. He was talking about a dynasty that God is going to ensure that the line of David will continue to sit on the throne of God. It's continue to sit on the throne of Israel. And this reign, he says, will continue forever. Let me ask you, did it happen? Did it happen? Yeah. In fact, the family line of King David did reign for more than 400 years. Do you know this is the longest surviving dynasty under any one, one family name, under one family line? It's the longest surviving dynasty. But it was really up and down, okay, throughout that reign, it was really up and down, depending on who the king is. There are a few kings that are very godly and God-fearing, but most of the kings that come after David, they were evil. And that is why, listen carefully, don't miss this, that is why ultimately it was cut off. Even though the promise was given, in the end it was cut off. When did that happen? I'll tell you when it happened. It was during the reign of a king by the name of King Jehoiakim. It's, you find this in, in the book of, of, uh, of Jeremiah. He defied the word of the Lord. This king, King Jehoiakim, defied the word of the Lord and the Lord put him under a curse. You know what that curse was? It is found in Jeremiah 36, verse 30 and 31. Don't miss this one. This is so important. He says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. He will have no one. Wow, this is big time. 
he will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounce against them because they have not listened. Now, here you are, right? The promise was given to King David that he will always have a king from his line sitting on the throne. And all this will keep going on until this guy came along. He was so wicked, the Lord put a curse on him and said, you will have no one to sit on the throne. How many of you know that means what? The covenant can be broken, isn't it? What happened then? So here's where the question to ask is, is it gone now because now that there's a curse like that and the line is broken? And this is where there is something even deeper, even more significant, which is the prophetic fulfillment in Christ. And that brings me to my last point, the prophetic future. The immediate future, you see all these things happening. And then it seems to be cut off. Now comes the prophetic future. So hear me. The present reality has everything to do with King David. Right? The immediate future has everything to do with Solomon, but the prophetic future is going to be all about Jesus Christ. And that's what we, our heart needs to, to go towards. And how do I find this? 2 Samuel 7, verse 14 to 16, the rest of it. Listen to what God said to David. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod Wielded by men, floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the centerpiece of the covenant. And this is where the double fulfillment comes in. While the immediate future is talking about Solomon, the son of David, the prophetic future is referring to Jesus, the son of God. And listen, they, Jesus was not just the son of God. He, was, he also came from the line of David. He was also a son of David. How do I know this? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, when he outlined the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of who? David, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I tell you this, friends, God is eternally committed to David's house because of his father and son relationship. Solomon's reign was imperfect and God would discipline him, but the love of God was never taken away from him. That's why people ask sometimes, you know, do you think King Solomon is in heaven? You know, because after all, you know, he, he, he did what he did, and a thousand wives and all of that. You know, I, I think he will be in heaven. Uh, I'll, I'll see him up there because God's love will not be taken away from him. Now, this reminds us, when you look at what is written here in verse 14 to 16, it also reminds us of the double fulfillment of the cross where Jesus also suffered these things, right? Jesus had the rod or wielded by man. He had floggings inflicted by human hands. But the only difference is this. Jesus took all of that punishment, not for his sin, because he was sinless, but he took it on your behalf, on my behalf. He took that pain. He took all of that suffering on the cross on yours and my behalf. And God's love remains with His Son. And I tell you this, my friends, His reign will be forever. 
and His reign will not just be over Israel, it will be over all the nations of the earth. How do we know that? Psalms chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, which is a messianic psalm prophetically written by King David himself. Listen to what Psalms 2, verse 6 to 8 says. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And then he said, ask me and I will make what? The nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Hallelujah. It's this this son, when he comes to sit on that throne, our Lord Jesus Christ, it will not just be over Israel. It will be all the nations of the earth. Hallelujah. I don't know. Are you excited? You all don't seem very excited. Are you excited? You should be, man. He's going to sit on that throne. You know, Jim Collins in his, in his book, Good to Great, right? He talks about setting big, hairy, audacious goals. I think this will be one. It's a big, hairy, audacious goal. A small nation like Israel could actually raise a king that will sit not just, uh, that, will, that will rule not just the country, but he will rule the whole world. And this king will be called the Messiah, which means the anointed one. The Greek equivalent would be Christ, Jesus Christ. And by the way, uh, uh, just to make this clear, the, 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 the Christ uh, is not the surname of Jesus, okay? <laughs> Sometimes you think Jesus Christ, like Benny Ho, you know, the Ho is a surname. No, Christ is not the surname of Jesus. It's actually a term to designate Jesus as the anointed one of God. That's who he is. The royal line of David was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus will reign and he will reign on David's throne forever. Hallelujah. Now you think about this. Let me tie it all up for you. In the Adamic Covenant, you remember? God declared at that point that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. How many of you know Satan was there too? And he heard that? I think Satan heard that prophecy. So you know what? He would naturally think that if I can just get rid of the seed of the woman, then I'll be okay, right? He'll solve my problem. So it would have been natural for Satan to then target the firstborn son of Eve. Isn't that right? If I'm Satan, I would think of that. I would target the firstborn son. I will make sure the seed of the woman doesn't get to me. So what did he do? That's why I think Satan attacked Cain with the spirit of jealousy and turned him into a murderer. But when that happened, Satan must have thought, I got him. I taught the plan of God. But what? Yes, what? That is not the seed of the woman that God was re referring to. And the redemptive plan went on. And that's when Satan figured out that, hey, the only way to guarantee that this will not happen to me is that why don't I defile the whole of mankind? And so you notice what's the next thing that happened? The next big thing was this. There's a cross-breathing between the, the sons of, uh, between the, the fallen angels and the daughters of men, which resulted in what? The defiling of humankind. But you know, God preserved a remnant and he started out all over again with Noah. And he imprisoned all these fallen angels that did it. And then God made a covenant with Noah to ensure the preservation of creation, which means what? Satan can no longer destroy and get rid of mankind. He can't. 
Then came the Abrahamic covenant, which informed Satan straight away that the Messiah will come through the line of Abraham. Am I right? So what did Satan do? He tried to get Sarah, the wife of Abraham, to go and sleep with the Canaanite king, and that would mess things up. But again, God followed the plan, and he turned it around, and instead of being a problem, the Canaanite king blessed Abraham with lots of stuff, so Abraham became a rich man. That which the devil meant again for our harm, God turned it around for his redemptive purpose, right? And when Abraham died, Sarah, uh, Satan turned his attention to his son, which is Isaac. And then what did he try to do? Try to get Rebekah to also sleep with Abimelech, the Philistine king. Again, the same strategy, but God followed it again. And when Isaac died, then what? Satan attacked Joseph. Why? Because Joseph was Isaac's favorite son. So he attacked Joseph. But when Jacob gave his blessing at the end, he actually gave the kingship to Judah instead of Joseph. So now Satan knows the Messiah is going to come through one of the descendants of Judah, which is what? That's where the line of David comes from. Are you with me? He's narrowing it, narrowing it, and now he's coming, going to come for Judah. And out of that came David. And ever since then, Satan attacked David more than any other Old Testament figures. And God, when God made with King David this covenant, the Davidic covenant, after that, David, uh, Satan knows it's going to come through David's line. And then he went after the kings, one after another, one after another. So you find the kings constantly going into all kinds of problems. Are you with me? You see, God, it's, it's all there. And ever since then, Satan has been coming after the kings. Why? Because he was going for the possible Messiah, the seed of the woman who will crush his head. And this went on until King Jehoiakim came along. He defied the word of the Lord, came under a curse, and that removed his descendants from the throne of David. And listen, brothers and sisters, when God cursed King Jehoiakim and removed the throne from his line, Satan thought he had won. He must have thought, I've won. The line of David's throne was broken because now there's no one to fulfill the prophetic covenant, but the Davidic covenant. But because we serve a covenant-keeping God, listen, brothers and sisters, we serve a covenant-keeping God. Though the stump seems dead, a shoot will come forth. Hallelujah. So Isaiah 11, verse 1 to 3 says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots. A branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel, of might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. You know, only a legal descendant of David can actually fulfill that promise, right? But God knew what he was doing. And this is where, let me explain this to you. We see that now it explains the difference between the genealogy that is recorded in Matthew and the genealogy that is recorded in the book of Luke. And let me explain to you why. And this is so important. When you look at Matthew and Luke's genealogy of Jesus, they all began with Abraham. Okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it was all good. Okay, and it goes all the way to Solomon. Then when it gets to Solomon, this is where it differs. Matthew begins to trace 
that line, okay, it goes from Solomon and then um, it goes, continue all the way. And there were, you got to understand that David had two sons. One was Solomon, the other was Nathan. And when you get to the genealogy of Matthew, it continued from Solomon. And it went on and it traced all the way to a guy called Joseph, who was the father of Jesus. Are you with me? But Luke, however, this is Matthew and this is Luke. Luke, however, did not carry on from Solomon. He actually carried on from Nathan. You go read it for yourself. And he went on and he traced all the way to a girl called Mary. Who is who? The Virgin Mary. Are you with me? And out of that came Jesus. Okay? And it goes all the way to David. Uh, it was David here and then to Solomon and to Nathan. And then it goes all the way this way. Now, this is so important because if Jesus came from Mary, but he's also the legal, legally, right, uh, connected to Joseph, but if Jesus come under the line of Joseph, the whole thing would have demolished. Why? Because there is a guy called Jehoiakim here who actually came under a curse and nobody must after him should sit on the throne. They, Jesus would have been disqualified if he has come under this line. But Jesus came under Nathan's line through Mary. Are you with me? And it's so important that Jesus was born of a virgin. He wasn't born as a result of a union between Joseph and Mary. He was born by the Spirit. If he had if this is a result of Jesus, if Jesus came as a result of a physical relationship between Joseph and Mary, Jesus would have been disqualified to sit on the throne because he would have come under this curse. Are you with me? But it didn't. It was a virgin Mary. That's why the, the, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is so important. Take that virgin birth away, the entire thing collapses. And it's so important. And now as a result, we has come under Christ. The Davidic authority continue all the way from Jesus all the way to us. I hope you are clear on this. And it's so, so important. Our God is a covenant-keeping God and He kept His covenant with David. He made sure that Jesus will reign one day and the devil was totally overtaken by this. I think it the devil is smart, but God is smarter. And we can only worship this great God whose plans cannot be taught. Why is kingship and succession so important? It's because when Jesus came, his first and primary goal was to restore the kingship back to God. It was to restore his kingship back to God. See, but the only problem is this, when Jesus came, the king has arrived, but there was no kingdom. Why? Because if you are a king, but you've got no subjects, how many of you know you have no kingdom? Jesus has arrived, the king has come, but he's got no subjects because all the subjects has been lost to another kingdom called the kingdom of darkness. So what is the first thing the king needed to do when he came? First thing he needed to do was to go to the cross, pay the price so that he can redeem his subjects back to himself. And brothers and sisters, all of us today are subjects of the new kingdom of God. And this is so, so 
critical that we now belong to a new kingdom. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says, For he has rescued us, Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And through the cross, all of us have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and taken into the kingdom of God. And because of his love today, we have total forgiveness, total redemption, and eternal salvation. Hallelujah. Can you imagine what all that means? Not only has Jesus sitting on his throne today, his brain, all of us belong to his kingdom, and he has made us a kingdom of priests and kings. And you know what? He, his authority, he now vested in us. The keys of David that he has, he now passed it to his church. And that's why in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, King Jesus declared to all of us, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loose in heaven. Church, we have been given the delegated authority to bind the works of the evil one and to release those who are in captivity to the works of the devil. We have been given the keys of the kingdom because God has ordained that we partner with him, right, to govern the affairs of the kingdom. So listen to me, brothers and sisters. When you see the devil coming in like a flood to attack your family, to attack your church, to attack your society with lies and deception, we rise up and we take a stand against him. You don't sit there and take whatever he's sending, but we stand up and we say we have authority to bind and to lose. We use our delegated authority to take back from the forces of darkness everything he has stolen from us. And we enforce the will of God on earth as it is in heaven because authority now belongs to us. And we exercise this authority through what? Through prayer. It is in prayer that we exercise the keys of the kingdom to bind and to lose. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I want you to know Davidic, the keys of David is in your hands. And we have kingdom authority to take back from the devil everything he has stolen. And we take a stand against the powers of darkness. Heaven holds the key by which decisions governing earthly affairs are made. But we hold the key by which those decisions are implemented. We enforce the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. Would you stand with me this morning and let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that you allow the revelation of your word to bring faith into our hearts. Lord, you are the covenant-keeping God and you kept your promise to King David that there will always be someone from his line that will sit on that throne. And God, you have so wisely caused all these things to happen so that when Jesus came on that throne, it is a throne that we establish forever. The King has come. And thank you, Lord, for everything you've done on the cross to redeem your subjects back to yourself. And all of us today are subjects of the kingdom of God. And we rule and reign together with you. Thank you, God, that you've given to us the keys of the kingdom, the keys of David, through which we can bind and lose. We bind the works of the evil one and we lose your will on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray this morning that you will come 
and you do this. For all my brothers and sisters here who may be going through difficult times, maybe through difficult circumstances, Holy Spirit, come and awaken in us this sense of understanding that you have given to us the authority to bind the works of the evil one and to lose your will on earth as it is in heaven. So come and do that for all of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.